dialogue of action means humanitarian aid and trying to take on ecological issues to get together or racism or a number of other sins that are a larger systemic area that religious people can come together around. In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today on In Good Faith, we're talking about interfaith dialogue and also interfaith discomfort. So, actually, I look forward to that because... I have learned so much from these folks that we're going to be speaking with today. In studio today, we have our senior producer, Heather Bigley. Hello. And student producer, Tanya Lockett. Hi. Glad to have everybody here. Today, we hear from a professor of English as well as a historian of interfaith work and dialogue. And I was really fascinated with our first guest today, Mayura Schreiber, who teaches at the University of Utah. Because in classes she teaches, she was motivated actually by the faith of her students, the particular tradition they're in, to explore her own faith and theirs to help make a connection. Yeah, and I love how she talks about the importance of curiosity. In fact, both our speakers will talk about curiosity, and that's just a good starting point for reaching out to people who are raised in different traditions or are practicing different traditions than we are. And so if you've ever wondered, what exactly is interfaith work or why does it matter? This is a great discussion. Meira is the author of Holy Envy, a brand new book subtitled Writing in the Jewish-Christian Border Zone. And she talks about how to make a border zone not become a war zone, (laughs) which I thought was really thoughtful. And she talks about the tensions. And one of the things that really stands out to me is her willingness to experience discomfort, to think about different ideas. In fact, the idea that there are not to be interrogated foundational ideas in every faith tradition and She wants to interrogate a little bit. Yeah, this phrase, holy envy, is one we have uh, talked about a lot on the show. And she's actually going to introduce the idea of holy insecurity, which I thought was really interesting. And it was something I needed to think about for a while. She also brought up God longing. That's something a lot of people in faith search for. People who don't have faith search for just looking for God. Yeah, and the emotional experience of that. Personal relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah, as different from the intellectual knowing, yeah, to a sort of a a feeling for God. Oh, yeah. I thought she brought in an element of duality in religion. She talked about the Word of God versus the Spirit of God. She talked about Orthodox Jews, and then she talked about more feeling and romantic Christianity. And there's a number of these, I think, that if you're paying attention, that you'll hear. So let's dive in with Mayra Schreiber. was a realization that I knew nothing about the New Testament. And there was a whole field of people working in very urgent ways, exploring the connections between Judaism and Christianity. And it just sent me back on my heels because I didn't even know that the topic existed. Yes, it would be completely understandable to pretty much ignore the New Testament and say, that's not in my Torah. That was later. And yet, when people are made uncomfortable by something in the field of faith, they often take a detour around it. You decided to go right through. I think it was partly because of living in Utah and teaching at the University of Utah and realizing that most of my students know very little about the Hebrew Bible, as you refer to it as the Torah, but they are much more literate when it comes to the New Testament. And I felt obliged to become more curious about what they knew, and especially with the door opening to the possibility that these two traditions have been long engaged with each other. Yeah, and long engaged... Not always with positive results. 
There's a there is <laughs> a, a fraught history, and you point out, which I think was really insightful, that anything like you're calling a border zone. I think at one point I wrote the border zone threatened to become the combat zone. <laughs> <laughs> that there there are moments when the tensions are quite high. And the whole business of how do we talk about feelings, about ugly feelings, that there are feelings of competition, feelings of envy, feelings of great loss, feelings of unrequited desire that inform the relationship between Jews and Christians. And it felt like a bit of a relief to me to begin to actually talk about what was going on as opposed to just being polite about what was going on. (laughs) My students are very polite and I appreciate their politeness, but I know that there's more, that they have more to say. And I wanted to try to see if I could open a space for that. I wonder if we could take a step back and show where you were coming from. Did you grow up in a religious family or circumstance? So I was born in Los Angeles. My parents were not religious, but my father was a very literate Jew and passionate about Israel and passionate about Hebrew and decided that the only way I was really going to learn Hebrew was by sending me to an Orthodox day school. So I became a very serious Orthodox Jew for much of my early life, well into my 30s. Most of the world I lived in was Jewish. And most of my practices, in fact, all of them were informed by rabbinic thought, largely in service of keeping a fairly insular world. So that was how I grew up. So along with that, there's the matter of learning the tradition, learning Hebrew. And then there's the separate matter of what idea or feeling or both did you have about God? So I'm going to say something here that might take you a little back. One of the things that's been happening for me when I've been talking about the book is people ask me, what do I envy about other religions? And I think the question you just asked me is something that I envy. Because in Jewish tradition, for it's changing a little bit slowly. We talk an awful lot about Torah. And we talk a lot about God as a principle, a source of meaning. But we don't talk very much about our personal, individual relationships with God. Some of the writers that I talk about in the book, people like Denise Levertov, whose father founded Hebrew Christianity, which became Messianic Judaism, because she has a real God longing. And her God longing takes her into away from Judaism into Catholicism. And that's a sobering thing to touch for someone who has been schooled deeply in Jewish thought. A lot of the writers, the Jewish writers that I explore, were in a lot of pain because of what they didn't have in their own, I want to say, religious repertoire, their own spiritual repertoire. And it was coming into recognizing that either the texts that could have helped them, the ideas that could have helped them, they didn't know how to access or they weren't part of the tradition. And that I grieved for their pain and their feeling of estrangement from Judaism because of what they saw in Christianity. Boy, and that idea of of allowing yourself to be in a position where you may have pain as you figure things out, because... I think we like things to be neatly categorized and feel like we have a handle on them, has generated so much really great, thoughtful art. Great stuff, isn't it? And that's what you hope. Look, wait, poetry comes out of grief, comes out of, and people daring to speak the feelings that mostly we mask over because they're too discomforting and we won't know what to do with those feelings. We won't know. We're afraid that those feelings will estrange us. I want to even say estrange us from God. 
Why is it worth doing then? I think real poets, real artists, they don't have a choice, right? <laughs> it's just, it, they don't have a choice. At least the ones that I've known. They don't know how else to be in the world. And as a, I call myself a professional fan <laughs> because I don't write poetry, but I think I'm a, I'm a very committed to helping people read poetry. And I really think it's a source of great spiritual meaning, not just aesthetically, not just beautiful, but deep, deep meaning that can help us grow. One of my hopes with the book might be is that people would sit with a poem and take a poem into a small group. Maybe they would even do it in an interfaith group. That would be a wonderful thing to have happen as a result of the book. But why is it worth it as a reader? Because you know so much more on the other side of it. There's a poem in the book by Carl Shapiro, who is a tough read, but he writes a poem called The Crucifix in the File Cabinet. And it's about imagining he's Jewish and ambivalently Jewish, but he's Jewish. And he admits in the poem, or at least the persona admits, to having hid a, a crucifix in a bag that he's also put a Jewish prayer shawl in. And he imagines the two interacting, intermingling, you know, these wow. magic. It's a magic moment and that their differences undoing each other. And this fantasy moment of where he touches the longing to get rid of the differences that have been so painful for him. I think that's a worthwhile space to walk into, to admit that the differences are hard. You talk about this concept of holy envy requiring, I think I'm quoting you, more than tolerance, but maybe even acknowledging a lack in one's own tradition. So you yeah. got me thinking and making a little list of things that, of, for instance, the welcoming of the Sabbath in the Jewish tradition is something did not grow up with. It was like, well, Sunday's going to happen and we do certain things. on, But it was never a joyful occurrence for me or with the, the commitment of Muslim friends to recurrent prayer and to draw yes. their mind back to God. I can make a whole list of things that I may say I personally could do better in this tradition. And I think being willing to even think that is unsettling for some people, that there might be something good somewhere else. I think it is. We've been, I speak just for myself, was being brought up in a very non-negotiable Jewish space. I'll say it was really the conviction that some of the more problematic or troubling, disquieting views of Judaism, it says God's chosen people, things like that, were absolutely taken as foundational not to be interrogated. And there was a certainty about Judaism. And one of and so even in, I would say that up until really exploring the issues in this book, I probably really thought that. I hadn't really realized that I thought it without giving credence to other religions. I did in a superficial way. Of course, we're polite people. <laughs> but I hadn't really thought about the way in which my view of Judaism was an exclusive view that it was the be-all and end-all. So you come around towards the end, I'm talking about chapter six here, introducing a new term, which is holy insecurity. The idea that you can cross a boundary if you know where it is and you know you're yes. exploring or talking, but what about these shifting and these fluid boundaries and learning to live with messiness? And maybe I could say, how has that shown up? You've worked with Christian students, with students who are Jewish and others, right, perhaps of, right. no, of no faith. Do you see this as being more enlightening to them? Is it unsettling to them? Is it all of the above? It, that's such a beautiful question. I need to give credit to the phrase to Martin Buber, who is a teacher and a prophet of inner religious relations well before his time. But that messiness, I think when I, I teach a class 
at the U and I teach it with a colleague of mine who is a Catholic theologian. And we teach a class called Jewish Christian Dialogue. And in that course, most of our students are either identify as LDS or they are without an active relationship to a faith. And they have different reactions. Some of my students, especially the ones that are very actively involved in their faith, are struggle with the idea of the that different religions see the borders are bordered differently. Like Judaism really does believe in a boundaried faith and that the language of having secure spaces where one doesn't come over into is is hard initially. And then they take it back and we work through it. And we work through it through all kinds of ways of reading and reading something like the Song of Songs, where they read it as a Christian allegory, but they also read it as an erotic love poem. And they're able to start holding two different readings in their heads at the same time that's when the insecurity happens and that's Mm. when meaning happens. And it's so human to be able to hold two ideas in your head. Yes. But students, young ones, don't always like that. Is God enough of a commonality, the concept of a God, even if people are thinking differently about what, who, or if God is, is even that something that can be a commonality to to bridge those borders? I'm not sure. It's a good question. Part of the issue is, and this comes up in my classes, a lot of students, when they're learning about Judaism, are surprised that many people who identify passionately as Jews either say they don't believe in God altogether or aren't sure, right? So that the idea that there could be this strong tradition that may have faith in values and in history and in tradition but God language may not be part of their practice. And that is a strong piece that needs to be respected and understood. I myself do have a relationship with God, but it I don't assume. And I think that makes Judaism different. And even different names, if I hear Krishna or I hear Allah. Oh, yes. Just the different name makes me think, can this be the same overarching God that I'm thinking of? Interesting what our language can do. Both and. Yes. I mean, part of the reason in Judaism, we say that there's 72 names for God. (laughs) Only 72. (laughs) And part of the reason I think what's informing that tradition is the idea that there's no way to encapsulate a God, right? It is the phenomena is escapes language and it's ever shifting in terms of where you are at any given moment. It's not a fixed relationship. It's a very dynamic one. You quote someone about mind-knowers of intellect and the God-knowers via faith. And is that, are those two different places that also have borders that need to be crossed? The intellectual understanding and the faith understanding of God. I think that one has to, one one of the things traditionally about Judaism was that, at least as I was taught it, it was largely a mind-knowing experience. Mm -hmm. And it was only as an adult, and I am only now becoming a faith-knower, I would say. And some of that has come from recognizing the feelings of lack that are activated by Jewish writers thinking about Christianity. And so I I don't know whether I'm answering your question, but I think that tension between mind-knowing and faith-knowing is a beautiful tension to put out in the world and take forward. Yeah, and maybe respect where people are coming from if yes. they're coming from one of those. And it's not this black and white, wrong and right. It's No, and one one can have an idea and the idea can grow and grow until it gets to the point where it moves into this 
unmappable region that we call faith. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. I have been really blessed when Muslim friends have invited me to, during Ramadan, to have a meal, iftar, break the fast at the end of the day. And I've been honored to go to that, happy with what I've learned. I've been happy with Jewish friends who have had me come to their synagogue and participate. But there's this other thing that happens, and you mentioned it in the end of the book, that happens in Christian circles and even here at my university, which you write about, you were in attendance at one of these, where they'll do a Seder or a Passover with an educational bent, and yet then they suddenly cross this line into now we're going to do it and explain it. And suddenly it's not educational. It's participatory in a way that could be thought of as appropriation. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I want to make clear this, the whole chapter that explore, the part of the chapter explores it is really about my learning and my thinking through my experience. I wrote about it twice at least and changed my mind. And that I really want to bring to your listeners is it's good to think hard about the situations that one finds one in and maybe even to change your mind. So it is slippery to admire another religion. There's a phrase of called religious tourism <laughs> of where <laughs> people go and they like look at the church and they look at the mosque and they look at the Buddhist temple and it's all beautiful. Yeah. And then and sometimes they come in and they participate in the mass or they burn the incense. And that's the place where one has to stop. I think, and really consider that you're in the space of a ritual that is of deep value and deep meaning for the people who have made a thick, thick commitment to that religion. There are lots of ways to learn about a ritual and encourage them. I think my big takeaway is, and the way you talked about it, Steve, was just beautiful because you said, I was invited to an iftar. I was invited to a synagogue. I think if one, if I was invited to a, to witness, I can't think offhand. Ah, all right. If I was invited by my Catholic colleague to a Christmas Eve mass to sit with his family, and be with his family as they celebrated this sacred moment in their lives, that was fine. For me to stand up at that, to join the line that was taking the Eucharist going Mm. too far. So entering upon invitation, entering someone else's space, I celebrate. But constructing that space in as a performance of someone else's religion, that gets really troubling. And you sum up beautifully in one sentence. I noted with irritation every moment the leader trespassed into my, quote, territory, unquote, that I had missed an opportunity to peer over to the edge into an abyss and to venture into a place of holy insecurity. Yes. Just the idea that there's a lot to think about and a lot to feel here. Yes. We're all exploring this together. Yes. I'm glad you, It it's hard. I think we are taught early on to assert our identities, to affirm our identities, to know who we are, and to shore up our sense of self, right, at the cost of being open to another person. And to unlearn that is hard. So we should be on guard, right, when we find ourselves closing down and figure out what's bothering us. Why are we afraid? What's challenging us emotionally, spiritually, when someone performs something or says something or shows us something about our own tradition in a different light? That's another thing. I wonder if I could ask personally, and these things are always so hard to put into words, but you talk about moving into the God-knowing part. What is it that you feel or that you sense that has come into your life that's connected to that? It is a, it's, it's a journey. I think even being able to say that I do want to know God, 
I do. That's a part of, that's a relationship that I want to cultivate and that I'm open to, you earlier asked about the names. I'm playing around these days with a lot of different names because I'm trying to find the name that I may know more fully, more deeply. But I think that this kind of openness has frankly also come from living in a place where Utah, where God matters. Mm. And that's been a blessing because I've had to go inwards as a result and think hard about where do I stand? What is my relationship? I think the only thing that I hope people will go forward is coming more open to the feelings that get activated to consider the discomfort and to be curious mm. about about each other. I think curiosity and curiosity is a wonderful world word because it also means caring. It's old meaning. So it's a caring openness and also maybe to learn a little more about listening. I think listening to the poems, listening to the wisdom of others. That's Mayor Schreiber, an associate professor of English and former director of religious studies at the University of Utah, where she teaches and writes about poetry and Jewish American literature. And one thing she said about poetry really stuck with me. I actually wrote it down because I wanted to remember. She talks about poetry dares to speak scary things. We heard her speak about spiritual discomfort and what you can learn if you're willing to be in that space. But putting it into poetry, I think we like poetry because it encapsulates in just a few words something that's very deep inside us. And I think poetry actually is... My poet husband will hate me for saying this, but <laughs> poetry is containable, right? It all fits on a page. And so it may be talking about the messiest of life circumstances or in the most painful of experiences, but you can turn the page on it and mm. write a new poem if you have a different experience. So, And I find myself really admiring her work to understand the faith tradition of the majority for students. Yeah, I think that's incredibly admirable. One of the things I loved from your conversation was the both of you talking about the names of God and her mentioning that in, in the Hebrew Bible, there are 72 names for God and how this represents this sort of shifting relationship you might have with God, how it's not always going to be the same, how it's not stagnant, it should be different. Because you had that very human question. When I hear the name that someone else calls God, I might have this moment of wondering, are we talking about the same God? And I think that, I think we all have that question for each other. Who is the God that you worship? And because it teaches us about the person we're meeting, what is it that you believe about God? That that reveals a lot about you in, the, in many ways. And he also touched on being inclusive and exclusive. You can accept someone else's name for God, but you can also use your own name for God and still refer to the same being. She started by talking about growing up in a very insular world, that no matter where she lived, she still was in a Jewish school, in a Jewish family, going to the synagogue. And so her whole world was that. And we're going to hear from Tal Howard how worldwide people grew up in one tradition, tended to live together, worship together, all of those things. But globalization and has made it necessary for us to be aware of other traditions and how we navigate relating with each other. So Tal Howard is a professor of humanities and history at Valparaiso University, and he came to BYU and he actually spoke about this book that he recently published during the pandemic, The Faiths of Others, A History of Interreligious Dialogue. The conceit of the book is really simple. Basically, in the last 150 years, there have been four or five major interreligious events that have been global invitations to leaders of different religious communities to come and talk together about how to create peace or how to create understanding. He talks about this 1893 World's Fair and that some people, religious folk, were saying, well, here's this big worldwide gathering to show off the best machinery, the best scientific inventions, all this material. 
And they wanted to have some spiritual element, which is really weird to have a world's fair of religions, but there are such things. In fact, we're going ourselves later this year to the Chicago World, in Chicago, to the World Parliament of Religions, which isn't where we all vote on each other's faith, but it's where we actually talk about how do we get along? Can we get along? What do we learn? What could we together accomplish in different communities? One of the things he talks about, the Catholic Church's attempt to apologize and take some responsibility for their behavior during World War II. The Catholic Church didn't do all it could have, in fact, to protect and stand up for Jews during World War II. And so there is this attempt to change and to repent and for that behavior that he's going to trace in the book. Which shows this thing that can't help but happen because we're human between religion and politics. So maybe understanding other people's faiths actually can have some political consequences. Or not understanding can as well. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of that. (laughs) We don't have to try very hard to prove that. (laughs) I thought it was interesting that he did bring up that as far as Catholicism is concerned, there were Catholics on both sides. So that was very interesting. Yeah, this is something that I think we all noticed when we heard his interview. Religions are not monoliths, I think is something you said, Steve. And sometimes people fight within a religious tradition more than they do with people outside of it. So you guys, we're going to hear from Tal Howard about his book and this history that is important to us as an interfaith show about interreligious dialogue. I found myself directing an honors program and a lecture series where I taught at Gordon College, which is a Protestant evangelical college north of Boston, in the years after 9-11. And many students understandably have questions. What is jihad? What's the relationship between religion and violence and Christian-Muslim relations? So I found myself working with colleagues to organize a number of Muslim-Christian exchanges and interfaith dialogue conferences. While I was doing this, I began to ask myself, what is interfaith dialogue or interreligious dialogue? These terms have gained great salience in recent years. And as you get into the literature, you find there's a lot written on it, but very little by historians. Most of it is from theologians or religious practitioners. So I thought I might be able to provide some type of history of the concept, where it has come from, where it's going. A number of scholars speak of an interfaith movement afoot today. So I thought I could, you know, apply the lenses of a historian to the literature and the thinking on this topic. And it's really interesting because by the time you get to the end of the book, the conclusion lists eight criticisms of interfaith dialogue. So after all of this reading and research, what do you think would be the best advice you have to offer those that are hoping to engage in interfaith work? There is conflicted in some ways. I think especially of those faith communities who have more exclusivist commitments. I would list the Latter-day Saints, evangelical Christians, Catholics. Sometimes it just devolves like feel-goodism and we all need to get along. What I call in another context, kumbaya bromides. So I want to recognize squarely some of the criticisms that have been leveled in it. But at the same time, I think it's a worthwhile enterprise And not just liberals or moderates or conservatives and their various religious traditions, but all of them should be stakeholders and thinking well about pluralism and interacting with religious others. We live in a more pluralistic and globalized world than at any time in human history. And I think that takes thoughtful engagement in the religious sphere to to understand that and and foster cooperation and understanding. And it doesn't mean that people won't have serious religious disagreements. I recognize that. But I think interfaith dialogue can help distinguish what are the real disagreements from what are just stereotypes and misunderstandings. You actually use that word exclusivist and then... You have three terms you use in the book. Can you walk us through those? My background is mainly in Christian history and Christian theology, but I think that there would be a lot of analogs and some similar concerns within the LDS community, but theologians often speak of exclusivism and inclusivism and pluralism. And I'm simplifying greatly here, but I would say exclusivism means that my faith is true and everyone else is wrong. Second was inclusivism, which would be defined as, I believe my commitments are compelling and I think they're true, but I also can recognize 
good deeds, good ethics, and good things in other traditions and other religions. And then pluralism would be that no single faith is exclusively true, but all have things to contribute from different perspectives. And then you might even add another one, which would be just like relativism. No one really knows. Sometimes that vocabulary, you know, has been helpful. I would say sometimes it can be limiting, but it has been helpful to to think about the enterprise of an interfaith dialogue. And it actually seems from what you wrote that you might have exclusivists and inclusivists and pluralists all in the same religious community, that in fact, some of the greatest divides on interfaith work aren't necessarily the Muslims won't talk to the Jews, but in fact, that there's a progressive group within the Muslims who wants to engage and there's a less progressive group that doesn't. How do we even go about solving that? That's a fantastic question, and it, it, it can be answered in many different ways. I would say sometimes, as a historian, I can say that interfaith dialogue itself has sometimes been divisive. Just echoing what you said, that some have been gravitated toward it while others are skeptical. Of course, in our society today, we have, there are many culture wars issues along especially sexual ethics and other things that are divided people within a religious community. So that those are important things to keep in mind, too. The divisions between people do not necessarily fall easily within different world religions, but they fall within different faith traditions as well. Just to give you one example, in the early 20th century, the Catholic Church was quite skeptical. One pope even called interfaith meetings promiscuous religious gatherings. But there wasn't an evolution that took place in the Second Vatican Council, a major conference of Catholic bishops that took place between 1962 and 1965. And they, the church itself expressed through, a, at least the way the Catholic Church works, through a council, a very high form of authority, produced a document called Nostra Aetate, which in Latin just means our age, but it's often referred to as the declaration of the church's relationship toward non-Christians. And it promoted dialogue. But since Vatican II, there's been a lot of writing and wrestling, thinking theologically to balance proclamation on the one hand with dialogue on the other. The Catholic Church actually produced a document in 1991 called Dialogue and Proclamation. I think as I've talked to um, uh, people here at BYU, that there's probably a similar issue within the Latter-day Saint community. A desire on one hand to communicate and that you are a faithful believer and you want to share your faith, but on the other hand, to also dialogue with other people and get to know them, not treat them as abstractions, but get to know them in their particularity. What are their religious background? What are their traditions? I think anyone going into interfaith work, I think wrestling with that question would be an important one. How can you balance proclamation and dialogue? And you talk about how this effort has been mainly from a Western Christian seat of power. And one of the ways that people sort of imagine that inclusivism seems to have been bring what you have, but we have the fullness because of our belief in Christ. The fullness resides here, but bring the good stuff with you. Am I summarizing that correctly? Yeah, no, I see where you're going with this. Just because that some of this began during the colonial period, the 19th century, the early 20th century, sometimes you do see paternalism or condescension. I profile an event that took place in Chicago in 1893 and another one that took place in London in 1924. And undeniably, sometimes there's a little Western Christian smugness or condescension or paternalism toward other religious believers. That being said, I think some of the people who organized these events were doing the best they could to bring perspectives from remote parts of the world, if you lived in Chicago or London, and it helped break the ice, if you will, to begin to foment a desire of understanding. But they were often very cognizant that it was a delicate, delicate situation. And, and actually, at both of these, there was a decision made that speakers from whatever religious tradition, they would have the final word. There would not be questions Mm -hmm. after their talk because they were worried that religious controversy and it could descend into the polemics and they wanted to keep it more as an act of understanding. Did you, in your research, was there a key figure that you found like, oh, this person speaks to the same things that I'm concerned about or this person, I didn't know about this person before, but now I really admire who they are and what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think I might just focus on the Chicago event of 1893 and the Charles Bonney, who was a lawyer, and John Henry Burroughs, who was a Presbyterian minister. 
They both reacted to the materialist direction of this World's Fair. It was supposed to take place actually in 1892 to celebrate Columbus coming to the New World in 1492. Of course, in our day and age, Columbus is a more complex figure, but in that time, it was just simply to celebrate. But it was also sort of a coming out party for the new industrial powerhouse of the United States, Chicago, which had been decades before was practically just a frontier city had become a major metropolis. It won the bid to hold this World's Fair over St. Louis and New York and a few others. And so the original emphasis was just to celebrate the political coming of age and industrial and scientific and technological progress of the country. Of course, bringing other countries together to display their own science, technology, and industry. But their reaction was that there's something too material about this and there should be a spiritual element. And let's bring different world traditions together. It was still largely a Protestant, even somewhat of a liberal Protestant affair. And notably, the young Mormon church was not invited, which I think is one truth in interfaith dialogue. Sometimes the closest the religious other, the more difficult the dialogue. And I think for many Christians, that was the case then. But it was the first time that many Americans had heard a Hindu or a Buddhist speak live in person. And ironically, in some ways, the event depended on the new telegraph and new means of steam engines that had taken place. It's hard to logistically engineer something like this before that date. So there's this interesting thing where there there was a subtle criticism of the modern world, but the means of transportation and uh, communication actually enabled this type of dialogue to take place. Really an unprecedented event. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. So when we get to the chapter on Rome, I have to say it was, for me, almost a—I mean, it was literally a page-turner where I was like, are they going to be able to pull this off? (laughs) Because it started with this very earnest desire— this mea culpa about behavior of the Catholic Church during World War II, it becomes something much more difficult and complex because, and this goes to other ideas that you're tracing in the book, we can't just say religion and politics aren't intertwined, right? That's an American ideal is that we say, oh, you can be religious and we don't talk about politics and religion in the same breath. But for so many other people, the way you even think about religion is different. And so religion and politics are always going to be intertwined. Can you talk more about that with us? Yeah, no, I, that, that's a fascinating episode in the history of the Catholic Church, history of religion in the 20th century. But the the document produced at Vatican II on the Declaration on the Church's Relation to Non-Christians, it really wasn't part of the Second Vatican Council to begin with. It was suggested a Jewish individual from France, Jules Isaac, he'd lost most of his family in the Holocaust, but he sort of lobbied the Catholic Church to say something of a mea culpa, that there needs to be after the Holocaust, given Christian traditions of anti-Semitism, there needs to be some kind of recognition and a kind of a reboot, if you will, of a Catholic-Jewish relations. But, and this is where you're, I think you're perceptive with the political bit, the State of Israel had been founded in 1948, and many of the Catholic bishops in the Middle East began to worry, like if there's a Catholic-Jewish statement, this is going to seem like an endorsement of Zionism and mm-hmm. the displacement of the Palestinians and all the, uh, the that complex of issues that pertains to Palestine. So that it morphed into, okay, we'll say something about Jews and Muslims and the church's relation to them. But then, of course, the bishops in the Far East said, well, what about the traditions that are close to us? What about Buddhism? What about the rich tapestry of Hindu spiritualities? So what, through various twists and turns and different iterations of the document, I I had the opportunity to go to the Vatican archives and look at some of the previous statements and some of the news coverage of the time. In a three-year period, it went to a a reluctant Jewish Catholic statement to sort of an endorsement of dialogue with the world's religious traditions. Four were mentioned, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, and Buddhism. But I think the document has implications for the Catholic Church's relation with other people as well. But I hope that's just a little episode, I think, where just the getting down the toolkit of the historian sometimes gets into the nitty-gritty of things <laughs> and how unexpected things can happen in history. And that that's certainly one of them that have major implications for the Catholic Church and world religions in general. 
What's interesting to me as I read through the book was there's two things here. One is sometimes there are these top-down statements that get made. How do we actually make sure that people who are living in the situation, living with a neighbor who is not of their own faith and sharing resources with them, which is something you talk about, right? Often what we point to as religious violence isn't about religion. It's about political maneuvering or it's about resource use or it's about there are a number of other things that it might be about. And also this idea that people engaging in interfaith work, especially after reading your book, tended to be older men educated by the West, different class perhaps of the rest of the religion. So we have something that's going on that we, among whom we would call the elites, how do we make sure that everyone catches the spirit of this work. Yeah, I think one persistent critique of interfaith dialogue has been its elitism, that sometimes they're just big conferences where different theologians or religious leaders come together and express goodwill for one another. But both elitism and the question of does it really work? Does this promote peace or is it a noble effort that doesn't have that much purchase in the real world? Actually, a, a critic of the 1924 event in London that I speak of the book that he said these are just vaporings of amiable idealist. <laughs> so that that's a legitimate critique. I'll mention this document I mentioned a little while ago, the Proclamation and Dialogue of the Catholic Church in 1991. And they itemize four different types of dialogue that I think it's helpful to, to think about and anyone interested in doing this and taking it seriously. And they all have justifications in their own way. I mean, one is certainly a dialogue of experts, people, scholars who know their tradition and can engage with scholars who know their tradition, their other traditions in a way. And that's, that's, there's a real value in that. But another one is what's called dialogue of life. And that means just getting along with your neighbor, working together on common projects in your community that really don't necessitate religious agreement, but you both care to have clean water and good schools, and how can you do that and recognize there might be some differences. A third one is dialogue of spiritual experience. I profile in the book an interreligious monastic group that tries to bring contemplatives or monastics from different religious traditions together to talk about prayer and those type of things. And then finally, a dialogue of action. And that means humanitarian aid and trying to take on ecological issues to get together or racism or a number of other sins that are larger systemic area that a religious people can come together around. So if you only think of dialogue as just the elites, there are legitimate criticisms to be made, although I would say there's a role for that, but it's uh, it, it should be more encompassing. You can maybe come up with different categories, but I found thinking about it in terms of these four categories quite helpful. I remember after reading from Ibu Patel, you quote him saying it's, all these dinners where everyone (laughs) eats this bad food and sits and listens to talkers saying how important it is to talk. I did have this moment of feeling like, hey, (laughs) (laughs) I hope it's more than that. Are you yourself involved in interfaith work? I approach this topic as a modern historian, but I found myself directing a center where willy-nilly I was creating these things and I started to reflect on it historically. I have gone to a couple of these type of I call them kind of parliament-style meetings where Mm -hmm. one elite after another gets up and says peace is a good thing and we need to be (laughs) dialoguing. And maybe they have their place, but I think especially work with young people is important. I was very pleased to talk to a class here at BYU earlier. I've taught a class called Christianity and Other Faiths, and I, I see as a teacher where I can play a role is awakening curiosity in students. I think sometimes... And I've worked with a lot of Christians, especially Protestant evangelicals in the past. Often they sort of assume they might know things about other religions, but very quickly I think you can disabuse them of that notion of how, how complex other traditions, how their other traditions are often internally divided and have different manifestations in certain geographical regions than others. I guess inspiring curiosity and helping them recognize how complex the world can be, religiously speaking, is where I see my own role in this whole process. That was Tal Howard from Valparaiso University talking about his book, The Faith of Others, A History of Interreligious Dialogue. Um, What I liked about Tal is that he was mostly speaking about, I guess, just going up against the powers that are there. He's like, we're just going to butt heads with you on that. I didn't grow up in a religious home. I I think I have much more religious tolerance. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as just all one, all correct or all wrong. No black and white thinking. Yeah. 
I think that's actually somewhere most of us arrive, right? Especially when we meet good people of different faiths. Which is a great point. And and his his four kinds of dialogue that sometimes we hear from the experts. We did that today, especially with him in history and everything. We're hearing from experts who can tell us what happened. There's also the sort of the life. How do we get along? I love that. And then my favorite is the sharing of spiritual experience and my choice to honor if someone else has felt guided in a certain way or felt answered in a certain way or directed, that I can honor that and maybe learn something about how I may connect in other ways than I previously knew about with something bigger than myself. Tanya, you're from Houston, which is the fourth largest city in North America and also incredibly diverse. That was one of my favorite things about living there. So coming from Houston, have you seen this sort of problem solving or have you seen this sort of interreligious community dialogue working itself out? It's almost like a, a religious curiosity. You wonder about other religions. And people, do, they're afraid that you're trying to convert them, so they just won't come up to you and start talking about their religion. If you ask them questions and start going back and forth, they bloom, they just open up and tell you everything about their mm. religion. But everyone's a little hesitant at first because they're like, I don't want you to seem like I'm trying to convert you. <laughs> so here we've got the one book, Holy Envy, and then the title of his book. The Faith of Others, A History of Interreligious Dialogue. So great guests with two very different approaches. I think of one as smaller and more intimate and one as this global vision. And we need both of those. And I think that ties in so well with what we are hoping to do with In Good Faith is to share personal experience from different people and then apply that in the wider world. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks to Mayra Schreiber and Tao Howard for speaking with us today. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Leah King, Tanya Lockett, and Katarina Martinez. Our sound designers were Daniel Phillips and Dallin Jepson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like the show, we hope you leave a comment or review where you get your podcast. Or better yet, share an episode with a friend. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod, on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. Good Faith.